Well, good afternoon, and you can see that the, the man of the hour has arrived, and we are just delighted, and we wanted you to know that what's happening now is um, a group of students from the Calverton Elementary Middle who uh, made a special trip here today, and why don't yes. you tell them what's um, this is uh, some of the girls from our Imagine Me Ministries uh, mentoring group um, at Calverton Elementary Middle. Um, it's an after-school program, and it's also a mentoring program, so they each will have their mentors, and um, we are just so excited to meet Dr. Carson, and they all have his book, Gifted Hands, and we're just excited to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Also, I just asked if um, she would mind me telling you that the school has had a lot of trauma in the last few days. They've actually been on lockdown uh, for the last three days. They had a shooting and things like that. So this is really uh, more than a bright spot uh, today. And we're so glad that they could be here. And so good welcome. Um, Carla Hayden, director of the Pratt Library, and it's been a wonderful day here for the fifth annual City Lit Festival. Uh, we've already heard, and some of you have been here all day, and we've already heard from some wonderful authors and poets like Laura Lippman and Dan Festerman and um, Michael Weaver. And this afternoon, we are really delighted to introduce a dear friend of the Amy Pratt Free Library, renowned neurosurgeon Dr. Benjamin Carson. Now, I have to tell you, I have to take this opportunity to just gush a little bit. Uh, during these times, though, when many people and many young people idolize athletes and singers and actors, and, and rightfully so in many cases, Dr. Carson, I think, epitomizes what a true role model should be. When you look up the role, role model, or you look up that word from the dictionary, I think it should have his name and picture right next to it. His story is truly inspirational and remarkable, and especially to kids now who have so many challenges in their lives. When he was a teenager, he escaped from the tough streets of inner-city Detroit and is now, as you know, a world-renowned pediatric neurosurgeon at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He's devoted his life to teaching and preaching the philosophy of overcoming life's obstacles from the lessons he's learned from his own life. Dr. Carson is living proof that perseverance, along with prayer, the drive and willingness to learn and acquire knowledge can help you through anything. He carries the message of hope and faith, faith in God and faith in yourself. And along with his wonderful wife, Candy, has established the Carson's Scholars Fund, and that was established in 1994. And this nonprofit organization and foundation recognizes and rewards students who strive for academic excellence. And for more than 10 years, the Carson Scholars Fund has given more than 2,000 deserving students college scholarships. And then, after working 14 hours or more at the hospital and running his foundation, Dr. Carson remarkably still has time to write best-selling books. He has shared his message beautifully in three best-selling books, Gifted Hands, that was chosen as Baltimore's book in 2003, 
Think Big and the Big Picture. And now for his fourth book, Take the Risk, Learning to Identify, Choose, and Live with Acceptable Risk. He uses his life experiences to help us learn how to measure and take risks. So we are very proud and honored for him to be here at the City Lift Festival. So without further ado, I give you our great friend, Dr. Ben Carson. Thank you. And thanks to Dr. Hayden, who has done just a fabulous job as the director of the libraries. Probably one of the most active uh, directors I've ever seen anywhere in the country. And uh, this, this particular library and the library system offers so many cultural events uh, for the citizens of Baltimore and for the citizens of Maryland. And I, I hope we've come to really appreciate what a gem we have here. You know, I, I got here sort of out of breath because I was running late. I never like to be late. You know, I, it bothers me to be late. And I was waiting for my wife. She said, I'm almost done, I'm almost done. Almost done. Almost done. And then finally, you know, when I'm good and late, she says, well, why don't you go on? I'll come on later, you know. <laughs> but all is well that ends well. You know, it's, it's always wonderful to do things in the library because the library played such a critical role in, in my own development uh, as a young person and, uh, and really was the place where I found myself. Uh, when I was languishing uh, as a horrendous student. And I would come into the library, and the librarians were always so friendly, and they'd want to know, what kind of books do you want to read? And, you know, once I started exploring those books, even though we were desperately poor, I discovered I could go anywhere, I could be anybody, I could do anything. I couldn't wait to get to the library. It was just, just a, a, a total escape. And I began reading about people and some of the incredible things that they did. And uh, I think it really opened my vision and, uh, and made me uh, largely into the person we are today. But the reason I wrote the fourth book, Take the Risk, is because I began to realize that as a society, we're very frightened of everything. You know, we used not to be that way. Americans used to be sort of out there. And, uh, you know, if, if there was a challenge, we were ready to take it on. And, and now we're kind of just so afraid to do anything. In fact, I think most people really don't accomplish very much in life because they're afraid to take risk. Then there's another group of people who never accomplish anything because they take too many of the wrong risks. And, uh, but, you know... Some years ago, I was back in Detroit uh, with the program Good Morning America, and they wanted to see some of my roots, including the schools that I went to, so I took them to Higgins Elementary School, and I particularly wanted them to see the science laboratory with Mr. Jake. Believe it or not, Mr. Jake was still there 30 years later. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, when I was there, he was a young, dapper, and now he was bald and fat, but still... He was still there, and it was great to see him. And uh, I, wanted, I wanted to take the camera crew into the laboratory because that's where I had really gotten stimulated. They had a red squirrel, tarantulas, uh, Jack Dempsey fish, crayfish, all kinds of wonderful things that really stimulated my imagination and, and pushed me into the science realm. And uh, I said, can they film those animals? 
And Mr. Jake said, are you kidding? We don't have those things anymore. We had to get rid of them years ago because some kid might get scratched or some kid might be bitten and the school would be sued. And I said, you know, what have we come to as a society? Everybody is so afraid of everything because they might be sued. And, uh, you know, it, it's probably more of a problem than any of us really like to stop and think about. But that's where the risk comes in. We have to, again, reach the point where we say we're falling behind in science. And we're falling behind in math. Maybe we have to take some risks to stimulate the next generation of young people so that they're, you know, gung-ho about science and they're gung-ho about math instead of just being afraid of everything. And, you know, when you think about people of accomplishment that everybody knows, they were not shy and retiring people who sort of went and hid in the corner and waited for things to happen. They were people who pushed the button. You know, people like Martin Luther King. Think about the risks that he had to take. And Abraham Lincoln had to do some very unpopular things, go against the tide. What a risk that was. Bobby Kennedy and the way he pushed for civil rights. And you'll notice all three of those people that I just mentioned got killed. So it was risky. There's no question about it. But they made enormous contributions in terms of moving the ball toward the goal. And you look at explorers like Magellan, Lewis and Clark, people moving into the unknown. And yet without them, where would we be? Scientific explorers like Madame Curie and uh, Jonas Salk, the, the polio virus. What if he hadn't been willing to inject himself with it and to inject his family with it? Because nobody else was going to let them inject them. But we came up with a vaccine to wipe out a deadly and widely prevalent disease because someone was willing to take the risk. So what pushes people to take risk? You know, a few years ago, when I uh, got involved in the case of the Bajani twins, remember the uh, Iranian young women who were joined at the head? They were 29 years old. And their dream, of course, was to be separated. And, uh, you know, they had explored the world looking for someone who would separate them. When I, when I was approached about it, I, I told them about Chang and Ying Bunker, the original Siamese twins, and how they, in fact, uh, lived to be 63 years old and had 21 children and ran two successful farms and had two wives. Actually, only had one apiece, but, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they, they lived successful lives. But these women weren't buying any of that. And they found a team in Singapore that was willing to attempt it. And I felt obligated to go uh, at that time since I had had, you know, a significant amount of experience in separating twins of that nature. And when I met those young women, 
you know, they said something to me that really struck me. They said, Doctor, we would rather die than spend another day stuck together. You know, that seemed like a, a very harsh thing for someone to say. But then I started thinking about it from their point of view. You know, they're very intelligent young women. And they had both gone to college. In fact, they both had law degrees. Only one wanted one, but they both had law degrees. <laughs> and, um, but, but they had very, very different aspirations, okay? Uh, one wanted to be a lawyer, and one wanted to be a journalist. And they were not finding any peace at all. In fact, they were actually getting to the point where they were having physical altercations. And... Um, you know, to them, it was a situation of being imprisoned because they couldn't do what they wanted to do. And you think about people who sometimes get confined to a, a prison camp for life and some of the extraordinary risk that they're willing to take in order to escape. And it's understandable. You say, well, you know, rather than being trapped in that situation, I understand why they would be willing to go through a jungle with poisonous snakes or to jump off of a cliff into a river or whatever they had to do. But for these women, it was exactly the same situation. They were trapped in an untenable situation. And a lot of times we can't understand that until we try to put ourselves into the shoes of the individual who's trapped. And, you know, taking risks sometimes means doing things different than what everybody else does. And I can remember when I was a youngster in grade school and in middle school, just when, uh, you know, my mother was pushing me to stop being like everybody else and start reading books start making us go to the library and doing book reports and the such. You know, that to me was a very risky proposition because it meant that I would no longer be popular. It meant that people would call me names. They would call me Nerd and Poindexter and Uncle Tom and all kinds of names and I would be the subject of jokes and unpleasant conversations. And I wondered, is it really worth the risk to put yourself into that kind of situation? The thing that convinced me that it was worth the risk was reading those books in the library. And I began to read about people like Booker T. Washington who was born a slave, and it was illegal for slaves to learn how to read. And yet, he learned how to read, he read everything he could get his hands on, and he became an advisor to two presidents. And, you know, that made an impression on me as I began to think about the long-term value of the risk that you're taking. You know, yes, there was a risk of being a nerd, and that was a significant risk. A risk of being unpopular, that was a significant risk. But as I began to read those books, I began to realize there was another even more significant risk, and that was the risk of failure. 
and that that was a much more likely scenario if I continued down the path I was going, and if I continued to associate with the people that I was associating with. And uh, so I began to do a risk analysis, and it made a difference. And then, you know, I was still very uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, we didn't have money, so I didn't have the ability to buy the fancy clothes that everybody was wearing. But I think as I read more and more, I began to become more and more clever. And I said, you know what? I know how I can wear some nice clothes. I'll join the ROTC. <laughs> you know, because I'd seen some of those really nice fancy uniforms with all the ribbons and the cords, and, and those guys look really sharp, and they had the spit shine shoes, and I said, yes, that will solve my clothing problem. <laughs> now, you know, I didn't get into the ROTC uh, at the beginning of the 10th grade like you're supposed to. It was at the end of the 10th grade, so I had missed uh, a whole semester. Uh, but at least, you know, I had the ability to wear the uniform. But, you know, once I got in there, uh, I saw this one guy, Colonel Sharper, one day, and he had all this fancy stuff on, and I said, oh, my God, is that incredible? And all of a sudden, I wanted to be a colonel. <laughs> and the problem was, you know, I only had a total of five semesters, so how was I going to get from Buck Private all the way to Colonel and uh, in five semesters? That was a virtual impossibility. But, you know, I set my mind to that goal. And um, in the first semester, I got promoted from private to sergeant. So that was a pretty big jump. And I started thinking, hey, just maybe, maybe there's a chance here. Well, the guy who was in charge of the ROTC program, there was one class, the second hour class, they were horrendous. They were terrible. They were horrendous discipline problems. They weren't learning anything. And nobody wanted to be associated with the second hour class. And he said to me, you're a sergeant now. Uh, if you want to take the second hour class and try to do something with them, if you're successful, at the end of the semester, I will promote you from staff sergeant to second lieutenant. You know, I'd be skipping a lot of ranks there. But uh, that would then give me a chance to sit for the field grade examination. So, you know, I decided to take on that challenge. And it was a significant risk because these guys were real ruffians. You know, you had a very good chance of getting beat up every day. But, uh, you know, we, we started talking about pride. And they did have some pride, even though everybody thought that they were miserable. And, you know, we started talking about who could drill better than somebody else, who could do the best marches, who could learn how to use the weapons, who could take apart and put together an M1 rifle in less than a minute. And, you know, they got so enthusiastic, they wanted to be the best. And uh, by the end of that semester, they were the best class at the school. And... The chief of the ROTC was true to his promise. He promoted me to second lieutenant, which meant I could sit for the field grade exam along with all the first lieutenants and the captains and the majors and the lieutenant colonels. And um, I studied all of those manuals, and I learned everything that was in them, and I got the highest score in the city. So I then got promoted from second lieutenant all the way to lieutenant colonel. 
And I still had another semester, so I got to take the field grade exam again, and I, again, scored the highest, so I got promoted to a colonel. So I was the city executive officer for the city of Detroit, got to march in the front of the Memorial Day Parade and meet General Westmoreland and go to Congressional Medal of Honor dinners and was offered a full scholarship to West Point. But that wasn't really what I wanted to do. And uh, I really wanted to be a doctor. That was the dream and the thing that had really spurred me on through all of my life. So I said, thank you very much. And I really enjoyed being around all of you top brass and seeing what the military was like. But I really want to be a doctor, so that's where I'm going. And I uh, won a scholarship to Yale, fortunately, and uh, because it was actually the only school that I applied to. Now, that, that, that was a significant risk because you know how difficult it is to get into a high-powered Ivy League school. I was naive, so I didn't know how big a risk it was. But I only had enough money to apply to one school. So I said, I'm going to apply to the college that wins the grand championship in college ball. Anybody remember that program, college ball? Yeah, there, there are a few of you. Okay. Um, that was my favorite program, and it was between Harvard and Yale, the grand championship, and Yale won. So, you know, I applied there and fortunately got a scholarship. And, um, but while I was at Yale, one of the interesting things that happened is it became very, very difficult to get a, a summer job back in Detroit. Detroit was in the throes of major league depression because the automobile industry was tanking as the Japanese automobile industry was rising. And, uh, you know, you think our automobile industry is stupid now. Well, they were stupid then, too. They, you know, they, they didn't understand the whole concept of, you know, downsizing and fuel economy and all that. And they still don't understand it. But at any rate, um, nobody was getting any jobs. And there were all these reports that there were going to be riots in the streets because there wouldn't be any summer jobs. But I would always get a job because I, I would not think the same way other people did. So I wouldn't go to the one ads. I wouldn't go to the posters. I would just get on the bus. And I would ride until I saw a bunch of businesses, and I would get off the bus. And uh, I would then go and knock on the doors of a couple of businesses and say, you know, I'm Ben Carson. I'm a student at Yale. I'm home for the summer. I'm looking for a job. And you know what? I would get a job because a lot of those little businesses – didn't have an advertising budget. But if somebody showed up on their doorstep, of course, they had a job for them. No problem. Uh, but one summer was particularly bad, and that didn't even work. Uh, so and I had to put my thinking cap on. I remember it when I was interviewing for Yale. Uh, I had a regional interview because I could, couldn't afford to go to the school. And um, the regional interview was with one of the big brass from Young and Rubicon Advertising. So I went to the Young and Rubicon building, got on the executive elevator, went up to the top floor, waited for the secretary to turn her back, and I went into the guy's office. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he remembered me, and he said, oh, Benjamin, how wonderful to see you. How are things going at Yale? And I said, things are okay, but I'm home for the summer, and I can't find a job. And he says, well, have you applied here at our personnel department? And I said, yeah, they're not hiring any students this summer. And he picked up the phone, and he called the personnel director, and he says, there's a young man named Benjamin on the way down there. Give him a job. 
So I had a job that year, too. Now, that was perhaps a risky way to do things, but it really had, uh, it really paid big dividends. But, but uh, the next time I was working for the highway department, and uh, these, I was a supervisor for the crews that go along the side of the highway and clean up all the garbage and put them in these giant plastic bags. You've probably seen that along the highway. Well, the problem... The problem was, uh, you know, these guys didn't share the same uh, work ethic that I did. And, uh, you know, they were not particularly interested in picking up garbage. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be paid if, if, you know, we weren't doing the job. And I said, look, guys, you don't want to be picking up garbage in the hot sun, right? They said, you got that right. I said, okay. I said, I have an idea. I said, why don't we start at 6 in the morning? I said, it's cool. They said, 6 in the morning, you've got to be nuts. I said, I said, no, listen, it'll be cool. You can work efficiently. And if you can pick up 100 bags of garbage in only seven hours instead of eight hours, I'll still pay you for eight hours. I said, if you can do it in six hours, I'll pay you for eight hours. Whatever amount of time it takes you to do it, I'll pay you for eight hours. You have never <laughs> seen people work like this before. I mean, they were the whole stretches of highway, absolutely pristine, 200 bags of garbage by 8 a.m. <laughs> and the people who ran the program were just flabbergasted. And they would always say, Carson's crews are amazing. But we never see them. <laughs> but oh, was it a risky strategy? Maybe. But, you know, it turned out to be a win-win proposition. Because twice as much work got done than any other crew. The guys got to have a vacation. I felt good because the work was getting done. And, you know, the, the next summer when I came back and I wanted that same job, uh, all of the supervisor positions had unfortunately been filled. And the people in charge of the program said, we're making another position for you. So it worked out that, that year too. But, you know, that's, and, and that's something that I try to tell people all the time. You know, you can always find a job, you can always find use if you make yourself valuable. And it is such a critical lesson that we have to get across to all of our young people. Because you'll go out there in the streets of Baltimore and you'll find young people going around saying, nobody wants me, you know, they're not hiring me, they're prejudiced, they're this, they're that, what have you. I've got to tell you a secret. If you can bring something to the table that they don't have, they need you. And the funny thing is, when people need you, they pay you. And it works out extremely well. And it doesn't really matter where you go. You can go anywhere in the world. If you have a significant and unique skill set, you're going to be needed. If you are a computer whiz, if you can build a computer from ground up, if you can analyze computer problems, there is no place on earth where you're not going to be able to get a, a fantastic job. And these are the kinds of things that we somehow have to make extraordinarily clear 
to our young people. Well, perhaps one of the biggest risks that I faced came during my first year of medical school. You know, I was off to the University of Michigan thinking that I was pretty smart. And uh, I did terribly on the first set of comprehensive exams. And I was sent to see my counselor, and he looked at my record, and he said, you seem like a very intelligent young man. I bet there are a lot of things you could do outside of medicine. And he tried to convince me to drop out of medical school. He said, you're not cut out for medicine. And he says, You've, it's only been six weeks, so it won't be a terrible waste if you just drop out. And in fact, we will help you get into another area. And, uh, you know, that was a pretty tempting thing. I, he said, you know, the authorities here are going to help me get into another area. And, uh, and I won't have to, you know, undergo the stress of something that seems difficult for me. But then I started thinking, what have you been trying to do your entire life since you were eight years old? And the answer was, become a physician. So was I going to throw all that out just because an authority figure said that I wasn't cut out to be a doctor? Well, as I started analyzing my own academic career, I realized that I did very well when I did a lot of reading and not so well when I listened to a lot of boring lectures. And there I was listening to eight hours worth of boring lectures every day. So you were supposed to go to class, but I, here's where I really took a big risk. I said, look, I know I'm supposed to go to class, but I'm not learning anything in class. Therefore, why should I go to class? And I learn a lot more when I read, so why don't I skip the classes and spend that time reading? And that's what I did. And the rest of medical school was a snap after that. And when I went back to my medical school many years later as a commencement speaker, I was looking for that counselor because I was going to tell him he was not cut out to be a counselor. You know? But there, you know, there are so many people who are always negative, negative, negative about everything. And they don't ever look at the positive aspects, and they don't really try to help you. And uh, it's, it's one of the things that people have to learn, particularly young people, uh, is not to simply go with the flow, not to go with what your peers are doing if it's not leading you in the right direction, and not to listen to people who try to denigrate you and try to tell you you're not quite as smart as everybody else. The fact of the matter is, if you have a normal brain, you're virtually a genius. Because the human brain is so incredible. It has billions and billions of neurons, hundreds of billions of interconnections. It can process more than two million bits of information per second. It remembers everything you have ever seen everything you have ever heard. And, you know, I could take a very old man, 90 years old, and I could make a little hole in his skull and put some electrodes into the hippocampus and stimulate, and he would be able to repeat back to me verbatim 
a book that he had read 70 years ago. It's all there. It never disappears. And it's, it's just a matter of learning the proper ways to retrieve it. But also of importance, if your brain remembers everything you've ever seen and everything you've ever heard, you need to be careful what you see and what you hear. Because, see, all of those things go in there and they affect you. And they affect the way that you think about things uh, and your perceptions. And it also will have a drastic effect on whether you are willing to take risk or whether you decide that everything is too risky. And you don't apply any rational thought processing to that. How many people have you seen, for instance, who are terrified of flying? Now, what are the risks of dying in an airplane crash? One in 250,000. It's very, very unlikely to occur. Your chances of dying in an automobile accident are more than 10 times greater than that. And yet, the same one who's afraid to fly an airplane is driving all over town, not realizing that one in every 25 people they encounter on the highway is legally intoxicated. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of irrational sometimes the way people lead their lives. And the reason that I, I really wrote this book is to get people to, to look at the risks that they face on a day-by-day basis in a rational way and not let it simply be driven by emotion, not let it simply be driven by what people around you are doing. And, you know, many years ago when I was very early in my uh, neurosurgical career, there was a particular case of a, a young girl from New Mexico who was having intractable seizures. She was in status epilepticus. That means she was seizing 24-7, Never had a time when she wasn't seizing. She had to be on a respirator because she couldn't even breathe on her own. She hadn't spoken for months, was paralyzed on one side. Many experts had said there was really nothing that could be done. The mother had heard about some of the work we were doing at Hopkins with the operation called cerebral hemispherectomy, where we take out half the brain to stop intractable seizures, made contact with us. Child was brought up on a medical transport. Some of us felt that she was actually a good candidate for that operation, even though she was a little older than we normally like to see. And there was one neurologist, very well known, who felt differently, and he said, absolutely, you can't do that operation on this girl. You know, look at all the other people who have weighed in on this. We will look like loose cannons. We will look irresponsible. It will be a terrible mark on the name of Johns Hopkins. And he wrote letters to the dean, president of the hospital, the departmental chairman. You cannot, under any circumstances, let Carson do a hemispherectomy on this patient. And then he made a big mistake. He left the country to go to a conference. <laughs> left the patient there in the hospital. And I said, now, this is our chance. And I talked to the mom, and, you know, she was on board, and we took that girl to the operating room and did a hemispherectomy. And, you know, when when that guy came back, she was off the respirator. 
her seizures had stopped. She was starting to speak. And, you know, he never had another negative thing to say about anything that I had to do from that point on. And some of them were quite controversial. But, but, but why was I willing to take a risk like that? Early in my career, suppose things had not gone well. That could have been a career ender. But I did what's called a BWA, a best worst analysis. I said, what's the best thing that can happen if I do this operation? And what's the worst thing that can happen if I do this operation? What's the best thing that can happen if I don't do the operation? And what's the worst thing that happens if I don't do the operation? Well, when asking those four questions, there was only one of the questions that had the possibility of a good outcome. And that was if I did the operation. So as far as I was concerned, it was a no-brainer. Now, if my primary concern had been different, if my primary concern had not been what was the best possible outcome for that girl, but what was the best possible outcome for me, then I wouldn't have done it because the risk would have been too high. So in order to do a best-worst analysis, the first thing you have to do is understand yourself. You have to know what your priorities are. And I spend time in the book talking about how to get to understand who you are. Because unless you know what your values and principles are, how can you ever know what risks to take? How can you ever understand whether or not you should risk a certain dollar amount on a certain investment, for instance, unless you know how you would react to that, unless you know how important that money is to you. All of those things become absolutely crucial and absolutely critical. The other thing that was crucial for me in terms of who I am is my relationship with God. You see, before I went into that operation, I prayed, and I asked God to give me wisdom to know what to do. And I always ask him to give me wisdom to know what to do and what not to do. Now, does that mean that everything is always perfect? Of course not. But it means it's probably going to be about as good as I can make it. And also, it also means you have to learn from everything that happens in your life. And you take those lessons, and it keeps you from making the same mistake over again. And that's, if, if you find somebody who's very successful in what they do, and you ask them, have you ever had made a mistake? Have you ever had a bad outcome? The answer is yes. They've had them, but they learn from them. You know, Walter Dandy, the, the, the very famous neurosurgeon at Johns Hopkins back in the 20s and 30s uh, was a risk taker. You know, he tried many daring operations that no one else thought possible. In fact, he was the one who pioneered posterior fossa operations. That's where you operate on the back part of the brain because there's very little space in there and it swells and people die very quickly. Well, he thought that it could be done, despite the fact that everybody said it's impossible to operate back there and a patient survive. 
And the first 13 patients died. Can you imagine how discouraged he must have been? First of all, he had everybody telling him it wouldn't work. And then he was seeing that it wasn't working. But you know, each time he was learning a little something. And when it came to that 14th patient, I frequently wonder what he said to them when they said, how the other 13 do? <laughs> Probably said nobody's complaining. But, uh, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is he was able to proceed and he was successful. And now posterior fossa operations are done on a routine basis every day all over the world. Because again, here was someone who was willing to take that risk. And virtually no gains are made by mankind without a willingness to take those kinds of risk. Now, I also in the book, and I'm going to have to wrap up very shortly here, talk about societal risk. Because there are, there are many risks that we as society have become adverse to. I want you to think back, some of you who are older and those who are not, think back to your history books to the early 1960s, something called the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Russians were bringing in missiles, nuclear warhead missiles to Cuba, 90 miles off our shore. With these, they would have the ability to target every major target in our nation. Now, they said they had the right to do that, and Cuba, as an independent state, said they wanted the missiles there. Russia said they are our missiles. This is international water. We can bring them in. We were faced with a dilemma. Should we stand up to the Russians and potentially trigger World War III? Or should we just play nice in the sandbox and hope that maybe they wouldn't do anything and try to threaten them by saying, if you shoot a missile at us, we're going to shoot a whole bunch at you too. But I think John F. Kennedy did a BWA. And he said he realized very quickly that the worst things that could happen if we allowed this were incredibly bad. And, you know, when he, did, when he looked at all those questions, he decided to stand up to the Russians, to put up a blockade, to say, absolutely, we will not allow this to happen. And if it means that we have to fight World War III over it, we will do it. You know, when you think about how chicken liver we have become today in general, and you think back to that, it really is quite, I don't know, inspiring almost. And it's not that I'm a warmonger, because I'm not, but I am a logic monger. You know, you like to think about what's logical. And we are now in a situation where we are faced with destruction, even though we don't like to think about it, by terrorists, 
by people who do not like our nation and who do not like our way of life and who, if they had their druthers, would destroy us instantaneously. Now, they're a little bit distracted right now. Now, does that mean I think that we should be in Iraq forever fighting? Absolutely not. I didn't think we should be there in the first place. However, I did think that we should fight these people because we have to ask ourselves, what happens if we don't fight them versus what happens if we do? Do we think that if we just say, okay, we're not going to fight you guys, you know, we're nice and we want you to be nice, that they're going to be nice? Well, you know, they weren't particularly nice on 9-11 and we weren't doing anything to them, so there's really no reason to think that they're going to stop. Also, we understand the reason for the attack. It's because the fundamentalists believe that we are so corrupt uh, that there's no possibility of any redemption for us and that the best thing to do is to exterminate us. So we have to sort of understand the enemy in order to know how to react to them. Now, I fully feel that one of the problems and one of the biggest risks facing us right now as a nation is not knowing who we are. Remember I talked about how in order to be able to do the best worst analysis, you have to ha have an understanding of who you are. We have to, as a nation, have an understanding of who we are as a people. And if you go back historically and you look at nations at war, the nation with the strong beliefs always beats the nation with the weak beliefs. And it really doesn't matter whether the strong beliefs are correct or not. Now, I've got to tell you, Al-Qaeda has some very, very strong beliefs. They're a little wacky as far as I'm concerned, but they're very strong beliefs. Okay? We, on the other hand, are in the process of immersing ourselves in political correctness, which means nothing is right, nothing is wrong, and if we're doing something that's traditional for us but it's offensive to somebody, we should stop doing it. And, uh, you know, let's not talk about what we believe in. And, you know, we don't, you know, maybe we believe in God, but we really shouldn't talk about that in public because somebody might be offended. Let me tell you something. Do you think the radical people who want to destroy our nation are going to give up their beliefs? No way. And when you look at all the other pinnacle nations in the world, before their fall, they all did the same thing. They abandoned their beliefs in themselves. They forgot about who they were. They forgot about what made them great. And they began to disappear in terms of their personality. And they no longer had the strength of conviction to fight. And they descended into oblivion. It's like it's written out as a recipe. And the real question is, do we have the ability to learn? Can we learn from the past? Can we read the history books? Can we begin to reevaluate who we are as a nation? Can we become proud again of who we are as a nation 
and what we stand for. Because I believe that there's something very special about this nation, unlike any other pinnacle nation that preceded us. You see, we are the child of every other nation. We are composed of every other nation. So we should have a great deal of concern for our parents, unlike many other pinnacle nations who are only concerned about themselves. And as we begin to to lead our lives in such a way that we demonstrate the conviction of who we are, I don't think that there will be any question about our ability to remain as the leader of the world and to do things in a very reasonable way, to be able to get rid of the incredible pollution that's going on in our environment. Right now, we're just not even thinking about the next generation and the generation after them. We're just saying, let us continue to consume Let us continue to to bring in more and more oil and petroleum products and pollute the atmosphere with things that are very difficult to degrade. It's not our problem. We won't be around. That is so irresponsible. That is so unlike what this nation was meant to be. Here we are in a situation where we pay much more attention to what's going on with Britney Spears than we do to who's winning the Nobel Prize for medicine or chemistry. We are sitting in a situation where if you have a computer and you have a computer problem and you call a support center, you're going to get somebody from India. You're going to get somebody from South Korea because we don't produce enough people in this nation who understand the technical nature of computers. We produce 60,000 engineers a year in this country, 40% of whom are foreigners. China produces 392,000 engineers a year. If you go to the country of Ghana or a bunch of other countries around the world and you look at their cities as they're being built and the skyscrapers are going up, who's building them? Chinese engineers and architects. We're losing our influence. We're losing our edge. And in the meantime, we're happily running around talking about the Orioles and the Ravens. Now, I don't have anything against the Orioles and the Ravens, okay? Don't get me wrong. But that's not the most important thing. We have got to begin to focus on what's important. And and that's the reason my wife and I took the risk, you know, more than a dozen years ago, to start the Carson Scholars Fund. We used to call it the USA Scholars Fund because we envisioned it as a way to save the USA, but all the scholars called themselves Carson Scholars regardless of what we did, so the board convinced me to call it the Carson Scholars Program. But the fact of the matter is, when we started that program, everybody said, forget it, it's not going to work. Are you kidding? In the public school systems, nobody's going to be interested in acknowledging academics and academic superstars and reading programs, it's not going to happen. There's too much bureaucracy. There's too much selfishness. And, you know, when we first started, we did almost come to that conclusion because, you know, my wife would go to places and the administrators and principals would say, well, we don't, we don't need a scholarship. Uh, we don't want a scholarship because they didn't want to do any extra work. 
But we persisted. We got some very bright people to lend their ideals. And that first year, we were able to give out 25 scholarships in Baltimore to incredibly bright young people. They have to have at least a 3.75 grade point average on a 4.0 scale starting in the fourth grade and demonstrate humanitarian qualities that they care about other people. Well, this will be our 12th year of giving out scholarships this year, and we'll be giving out more than 600 in 26 states. And uh, there are now more, now there have been more than 3,400 scholarships awarded. The program has won the Simon Award, which only goes to one philanthropic organization in the nation. And it comes with a check for $250,000, by the way. It's won the Ronald McDonald House Charitable Award, also a one-time award. The Ford Fund Award last year. But of course, it's not done for the awards. It's done for the effect, because what we have to realize is that we as individuals all have spheres of influence. We can actually do things that can change the society. And uh, we have to not be so worried about what other people think, not be so worried about if you're going to fail, not be so worried about if you're going to be sued, but just concentrate on what the goal is. It's sort of like if I took a nine-inch beam and I laid it across the stage here. Nine inches wide, virtually any of you could walk across it. You wouldn't even give it a second thought. But if I elevated it a mile in the air, now who's going to walk across it? It's the same beam. You have the same feet and the same balancing ability. But now you're not really concentrating on walking across the beam. You're concentrating on what happens if you fall off. And you see, that's what's happened to us as a society. We've stopped walking across the beam, and we started worrying too much about what if we fall off. And as a result of that, we're not getting to our destination. We're not getting to our goal. And I believe we have the ability to do this. And a large part of our ability to do that revolves around our ability to understand who we are as a decent, and caring people, as the nation that saved the world from totalitarianism back during World War II, as the breadbasket for the world, as the beginning of the technology center, but we've let that go, and as the people who care. And we can receive that again. And the place where that came from, think about it. Think about the beginnings of this nation a bunch of ragtag militiamen able to defeat the most powerful empire in the world. You think we did that on our own? No. It was divine intervention. There was a God, and that's the reason that we became a God-fearing nation. And that's why our Pledge of Allegiance says we are one nation under God. And that's why every coin in our pocket and every bill in our wallet says, in God we trust. And that's why our Declaration of Independence talks about certain inalienable rights given to us by our Creator. And we have to begin to understand that it's okay to live by godly principles of loving our fellow man, of caring about our neighbor, of developing our God-given talents to the utmost, of having values and principles that govern our lives. And if we do that, 
Not only will we be a pinnacle nation, but we will be one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think, I think, I think we have time for a couple of questions. We have time for a couple of questions before we end. Yes.